Good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the leaders here at Sanctuary. Uh, and if you're new with us, uh, welcome. It's great to have you. Uh, if you're feeling uh, slightly somber uh, due to the rain, um, due to the humidity, uh, due to the low light in the room, uh, it couldn't be a, a more appropriate um, atmosphere for what we're going to do today. Um, so um, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are aware of what happened um, this past week in Charleston, um, the, uh, the massacre by a, a terrorist um, who... Uh, killed nine people in a church in Charleston. And we thought it appropriate as we were um, sort of talking with folks in our city, both folks who were followers of Jesus and not, uh, as we were looking at the, the larger landscape of the church's response around the country. Um, what does it mean to, to mourn when others mourn? What does it mean uh, in the scriptures when I talk about when one part of the body is, is broken and hurt, it affects the whole. Uh, and, and then uh, on Friday, we decided, you know, instead of just having a moment of prayer, let's actually orient our whole service around this. Let, let's lament together. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later, of what it means to lament. Uh, let's be angry together. And why, for Jesus, um, for God Almighty, anger is something that is a, a beautiful act that ends up leading, or an emotion that leads to healing so often in the scriptures. And, uh, and so we're going to frame our whole service around uh, a, a call and response liturgy uh, that some friends of ours wrote a church in, in Portland, Oregon, that actually at this point I just checked, there's thousands of churches around the country going through this exact prayer. So some are doing it as one whole, and we've decided to take this liturgy, this call and response prayer, and break it up into four pieces. So it's going to help us walk through the process uh, um, of mourning and engaging. And the first section begins with we stand before you today. The second section is we cry out to you. Um, the third is we pray to you. And then the fourth is we declare. And so it, it's an appropriate way to walk through. We, we stand and acknowledge what's happened. We cry out and recognizing uh, the, the awfulness of what's taken place and the larger things that this points to. We pray and we invite, um, we invite God into the brokenness of our own hearts, into the, the, the reality of what's happened. Um, but so often when we pray, right, we pray on earth as it is in heaven, where there's a sense of we're inviting ourselves into joining God in what he is doing. And then we declare, we're going to resolve to be a church that responds to the cry today. So that gives you a sense of, of the outline. So our kids are going to be dismissed a little earlier. We'll do that in a moment. Um, there's going to be this song that's going to occur uh, that we've been doing within the church called just the prayers of the people. Really simple, just singing Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy that will kind of rear its head throughout the time. And then I'm going to give sort of two reflections instead of one sermon. You're going to get two. <laughs> I've actually cut them down, hopefully. Um, uh, so, so these will be two pieces that will kind of, again, hopefully help us through amongst the four pieces, these kind of two acts, one of lament and then one of engagement. So it hopefully gives you a sense. If you're new with us, this is not how we normally do our Sunday morning gathering, but we think this is important. And, and I do want to recognize, I'm, I see a couple of you here, like welcome, who, who aren't, aren't, aren't followers of Jesus, but felt like they needed a place to come and just wrestle with others. And, and so though they're 
differing, and there always are on a Sunday morning here at Sanctuary, differing views and different ideas about the world. What is beautiful uh, is that in our humanity, we as followers of Jesus believe all being made in the image of God uh, creates these, these deep and rich points of connection that we can mourn alongside others in our city, in our region, alongside what's happened. Um, so uh, if, if you, you feel angry at moments, if you feel really sad at moments, if you're like, good Lord, this church is depressing, that's really good. And you should hopefully feel all those things this morning. Uh, this hopefully will be a very hard and redemptive thing for us to walk through as a, as a community. Um, so I'm going to pray for our time. Uh, the band's going to lead us in the prayers of the people. And, um, and then we're going to kick off, I think, uh, Nako is the first person who's going to, uh, to read uh, the first prayer. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, uh, one, we thank you just for the, the, the faithfulness of other churches who are joining in in this prayer. And this call and response that's all across the country is, is being uttered right now and will be uttered throughout the next few hours. And we pray, um, Lord, hear our prayer. We, ha- we say, God, we cry out to you that you would change our hearts. That you would help us identify with the pain of our sister and brother. Uh, and Lord, that this would, would cause the church in, in this country um, to, to grow closer to your heart. And so in your name, Lord, we sing. You hear us calling, you hear us calling, Abba Father. You hear us calling, you hear us calling, Abba Father. Sing that again, you hear us. You hear us calling, you hear us calling, Abba Father. You hear us calling, you hear us calling, Abba Father. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Calling, you hear us calling, Abba Father. You hear us calling, you hear us calling, Abba Father. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. I want to talk to um, you guys for a few minutes as we set up the second part of, of, our, um, of our time together, um, talking a bit about the cry. I want to unpack uh, why God gets angry or some of the reasons. <laughs> and I want to look first and foremost at a, a, a passage um, in Mark 3, that sounds pretty unrelated, actually, at first. Um, it's this time that, that Jesus um, is, is in the synagogue, and, and I, I want to give you a little bit of context for this. Um, let's read the text first, Mark 3, verse 3. 
Another time, uh, Jesus went into the synagogue. So Jesus is a, a rabbi, he's a teacher. And he went into a place of worship. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, someone with an ailment. And he said, some of them, and these are the Pharisees, the religious people, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So religious folks were not a fan of this Jesus. Uh, he was, he was uh, gathering people uh, in his name and saying, um, saying things and doing things that they did not think fit religion, uh, did not fit the Torah, did not fit the way of God that they, and how they understood it. Um, so they're looking for a reason to sort of get him in trouble with the establishment. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So a little background of why this would be a big deal. So on, your, on a day of rest, a day that's devoted to God, would they do something like heal someone, provide aid for someone, care for someone? The goal for, for a, good, a good Jewish person at this time is to live Torah. Jesus says, I came to show you what the Torah looks like on display. And so one of the laws of the Torah, the, the way, the truth, and the life, it's interesting, Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. This was what the Torah was also referred to. This was the commands of God that were to be life-giving, the Old Testament, or the first uh, five books of the Old Testament. Sabbath was do no work. And so different rabbis had these sort of lists, and it was their, called their yoke. It was their understanding, their, their, their understanding of the teaching. When Jesus says, my, my, my yoke is easy, anyone ever heard that text before? My yoke is easy. It's not, it's actually referring to his teaching. Like my, my teaching is, is, is easy. It's, it's, there's a simplicity to it. There's a hardship and a simplicity to it. So he's talking about his teaching. Uh, and different rabbis had different yokes, different ways they interpreted the Torah. And so you would follow a certain rabbi if you liked and agreed with their yoke. And sometimes uh, there would be places, and we see this today, where different teachings would contradict each other depending on what was happening. So there's commands like you should always save a life. And then uh, what happens when your donkey falls into a hole on the Sabbath? You know, vital to our day. Um, and so, for instance, if you're supposed to save a life and your donkey, right, a primary means of, like, of, of producing goods in an agricultural society, this happens, but it's on a Sabbath, so it's on a holy day, you're supposed to do no work, they would have these inane conversations, or, or you could argue important conversations, around well, what happens when these two commandments take place, or happen in the same way. It's supposed to be a day of rest, but this happened. I want to honor God, but I would not be honoring God in one way or another. And so the, the question was which command was weightier and which command was lighter. So there was like, like heavy and light. My burden is light. It just raises questions around what Jesus is saying in that passage. And so this was just kind of modern day of the time ethics. Some rabbis, you save the life, and others would say, no, you let the donkey fall and you should actually rest. And this was actually one of the big debates, is what do you do on a Sabbath, and what shouldn't you do? So this was important, because the Sabbath was this day that you would carve out where you would do no work You'd be reminded that God is at the center, that there's a day of rest. You'd let the land rest. It was really essential to the life of these people. And so in verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, sounds like a kid's book, the man, anyway, stand up in front of everyone. So Jesus is in this setting. He's in the synagogue. He knows all these debates are going on. And he goes, I, I like to imagine Jesus with a bit of swagger in this moment. And he says, stand up. So Jesus is looking for a fight. 
He's looking for a fight. And verse four, then Jesus asked them. So he asked the religious leaders. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to, to, or to kill? The discussion is, is sides, and Jesus asks a totally different question. Not about the law, but like, isn't it important? Isn't it important to do good or is it important to do evil? Because they know if he heals, he's breaking the Sabbath, and he's making a statement about the laws of the land. And they remained silent when he asked them this question. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. I wanted to start with a passage that feels like it has no bearing on what we're diving into today because it's one of my most favorite stories around Jesus getting pissed off. He is angry at their silence. There's an opportunity to save life and you are hung up on something Else. I want to talk for a moment about the Jesus, the God who gets angry. The word here in the Greek on the screen is the word orge. Uh, and Aristotle, in talking about the epistemology of the word, des- describes it as desire mixed with grief. Desire, so passion, movement mixed with grief. Uh, and it's uh, something really crucial as well. It's in the eros tense, which is, uh, sort of means it like comes on Jesus for a moment and then leaves. It's temporary. It isn't petty. It isn't selfish. It's not something he's carrying around. In the present um, tense, it's, it comes upon him in a moment and then it leaves. <clears throat> Throughout the scripture, we see the God of, this, uh, of, of the, the scriptures getting angry divine anger that responds over and over and over to the places of injustice. A God of wrath, a God of anger, a God of judgment. And I think so often in our desire as Christians to articulate what God is first and foremost, what we're we're told God is love crystal clearly in the scriptures. God is love. But we we have to remember that a God of, of love needs to be wrathful. A God of love isn't a God who looks upon injustice and then walks away from it. A God of, of, of judgment, a God who gets angry at the things, at the cancer inside his kids, is, is a God of, of love. We, we too often remove this image because it seems startling, and yet we know this to be true about the nature of love. What are the kinds of things that God gets angry about? In Amos 5, uh, God is talking to a group of religious people uh, through the prophet Amos about their religious gatherings. Just read this. He says this, Amos five twenty one. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Around issues of race in this country, this phrase has been mentioned often. Martin Luther King and John Perkins, let justice roll down like a river. They're quoting the prophet Amos. Righteousness like a never failing stream. He's basically saying, I wish you'd stop singing. All of this is happening out here and all you're doing is the comfort of your religious gatherings. It's making everybody just kind of feel good about themselves and I hate it. Isaiah addresses similar things except he uses the language of vomiting. It's really pleasant. Amos 8, 
in the same book. It says, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over and may we sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and needy with a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat saying you're obsessed with being wealthy. You're obsessed with being comfortable. You sell people dirt mixed with wheat. You take advantage of the poor. I wish you'd stop singing. You're making me say, God, we talk about a God who is angry. We're talking about something that actually in some way should be a bit comforting to know that the God looks in at the violence and brokenness of this week and is furious. It's not a God who says it's no big deal. We shouldn't find God's anger disturbing, I would submit to you. So back to Jesus. The religious people want nothing to do with what he's saying, with this healing. They don't want to venture into this debate, and he is angry about it. He's angry because there's somebody here who is crying out in pain, who has uh, an ailment, and Jesus responds. So often, so often, I didn't take enough time to figure out the percentage, but God is angry because he hears the cry. One writer says, everything begins in scripture with hearing the cry. It's like the start button. And this text that, that kind of came to light in light of thinking about this in, in the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 4, it's a story of Cain and Abel. It's this really primal story of violence. It's in this book that's describing like who we are and, and where we come from, what, what, this, what it means to be human, both the good and the evil. And in verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, uh, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, there's a whole backstory I'm not going to get into here, but Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Never say to God, like, uh, when he asks you a question, like, he kind of knows the answer. He's, like, looking for a different response. Like, oh, I don't know. The Lord said, what have you done? The Lord asks him a question. What have you done? And then says, listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In between the words, what have you done? And your brother's blood cries out to me on the ground. God says, Listen. Because everything begins with a cry. It begins with someone crying out and someone else hearing it. Psalm after psalm, these prayers of these first people point to this God who hears the cry over and over and over. He hears the cry of the afflicted and he doesn't turn from them. Here's a few passages on the screen. Psalm 9, 12. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. Next Psalm. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. And finally, this is an, an actual prayer for an afflicted person. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. It's hard because sometimes for many of us, 
to, just to hear the cry is, is, is painful and agonizing and we don't know what to do with it. So we can immediately assume we have no real part or place in dealing and wrestling with the, this awful thing that's happened. Speaking specifically this morning of Charleston. The book of Proverbs, it's written that a rich man's wealth is his fortified city. Maybe not all of you identify as wealthy, but for 90% of us in the room, we're doing okay. And I think so often our ability, whether it's our wealth or our culture or our rhythms, they create fortified cities that keep the cry out. Jesus tells a parable about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Lazarus is at, his, at the rich man's gate every day, and the rich man's gate keeps this poor man out. But it also keeps, and this is the important thing, it keeps the rich person in. Walls isolate. Gates and freeways and school systems and grocery stores and health clubs and shopping malls and homes and office buildings and race can actually isolate us. They can isolate us. For those of you um, who identify as white, <laughs> in the same way that you begin to recognize your privilege when, let's say, a friend of yours like loses an arm, loses their ability to, 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 uh, to use their, their faculties, Right? We all have a moment, if you've ever been ex experienced that, a friend or someone kind of near to you all of a sudden isn't able to see, let's say. You all of a sudden, what? You appreciate the privilege. Our privilege isn't bad. Privilege just is. You appreciate the fact of, oh my gosh, like I am more grateful and appreciate the privilege I have of being able to see more than ever. And inherently, you do not know that person's experience being a blind person if you are not blind yourself. You do not know what it's like to not be able to use your hands. All of a sudden, the situation of privilege has arisen. It's sort of been a helpful way to help me just begin to engage as a, as a white man, understand the things that I don't understand, to at least acknowledge the fact that there are things that isolate me from the cry. That I, 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 can, I can say, yes, of course, that's awful. Maybe I can identify with the pain or loss of a loved one. Maybe some of you actually even had someone killed in your life, and you're a lot closer to that. But there are things, and I'm speaking again specifically to my white sisters and brothers, that we cannot fully understand, and that's, it just is. And what we can do is acknowledge the place and begin to be a people that listen to the cry of our black brothers and sisters. Ronald uh, Rollheiser, his quote's on the screen, and I want you to stay with me on this. He's saying this about our relationship with God, but I think it applies to anything. He's speaking about our current culture. He says, if we are not a generation in love with itself, we are undeniably a generation obsessed with itself. Awesome, thanks, Ron. <laughs> we stand before reality preoccupied with ourselves. We will see precious little of what is actually there to be seen. Moreover, what little we do see will be distorted and shaped by our self-interest. The outside world has little power to penetrate or even distract you. Your reality has been reduced to the size, shape, and color of your inner world. 
It is not surprising that we have trouble believing in the reality of God when we have trouble perceiving any reality at all beyond ourselves. I think this is totally true of God. I think this is also very true of a situation that we find ourselves in today. For many of us, we have tried or do try to isolate ourselves from the cry. Or we inoculate ourselves because we posted something on social media and then we turned and we walked away. Joining God, right? Our mission as a church, joining God in the work of a renewal equals hearing the cry ourselves. Everything begins with the cry. And so my question for you this morning as the, if you want to start playing again, Dan, we're going to go into a time of lament. Is do we want to know? Do we slow down to listen? What do we do with the cries that we hear? Both specifically about Charleston and the things around us. Do we have time to consider involvement in responding to the cry? Do we fear being called on to respond? What would it look like to live a life that had space and time and energy to respond to the cries that we can hear? What would it look like to be willing to actually sit down to read more and understand opinions from certain websites that we don't normally go to, to hear the voices of people we don't normally interact with, to acknowledge the places of, of privilege? And, and though I'm, I'm speaking predominantly at this moment to, to, again, my white sisters and brothers, um, this is not just unique to them. That maybe for you, you have a bit of compassion fatigue. Maybe you're here and you are a part of a minority group. And for you, you've actually, because of, of maybe being around these conversations all the time, have actually distanced yourself from feeling the ache of history and feeling the ache of the brokenness that exists in our country, this deep wound that has not healed. So many amazing, this is why it's so hard for many of us, right? We have an African-American president. Most of the people that we look to of celebrities and entertainers and ball players are all African-American. And so, so for many of us, we go, how can there be racism? How can there really be privilege, right? These, for some of you, that's where you're at. And that, it's good to acknowledge that. And then it's good to stop and say, wait, why are so many crying out and aching around something so much bigger? Why, for so many in certain parts of the country, has the wound not healed? We're, we're Christians, most of us in this room. So we should be the most humble and willing to listen, to lay down our own opinion and go, I, I want to hear. If there's a place that I'm not hearing the cry and not identifying with your pain, then, then I want to. And so this leads us to our response for the next section of our service, which is Lament. This is a very lost discipline. Most of the songs, and we're guilty of this too, that we sing at Sanctuary and that the church sings, when you look at like the top 100 church songs, there actually is a top 100 church songs. So many of them are triumphant, right? They're Easter. We are Easter people, and that's good. They're victorious. But so often they don't delve into the very language that is in the scriptures around the Psalms. Uh, one writer says half the Psalms are just blues songs. 
their middle finger to God, their what the heck, their doubt, their questioning, their frustration, their like why. Psalm 88 is like a great psalm. It has no resolution. There's no like at the end. But thanks be to God. It's just like, I hate everything. Everything is broken. Where are you? And the writer just drops the mic. God can handle. There's a whole book in the Bible, Lamentations. Lamentation, lament. It's all lament. Some of you are like, whoa. The Bible is filled with them. Lament is not despair. Lament is not whining. It is not a cry into the void. It is not people who pray as those who don't have any hope, that there's no God, that there's no redemptive arc to the universe, that God isn't putting everything back. Lament is a cry directed to God. It is a cry of those who see the truth of the world's deep wounds and the cost of seeking peace. It is the prayer of those who are deeply disturbed by the way things are. And so the journey of reconciliation is grounded in the practice of lament. And if we don't do this as a church in situations like this with Charleston, the absence of it, it results in a loss of memory. Something Soon John Ross says. It, it results in a loss of memory. We forget. And it's not good for us to forget. The, the people of God always get in trouble in the scriptures when they forget God's promises and we, they forget the mistakes that they have made. Lament helps us engage the cry. So in this space, we're going to lament. We're going to sing a song. You can feel free to pray these words along with. Most of you probably don't know it. You can close your eyes and just let the words wash over you. And then we're just going to have some space to sit. And maybe your prayer is, God, I, I want to, I don't get it. And some of you, it's like, I don't want to feel bad. You're literally, literally, the pastor's inviting me to feel really bad right now. Yes. Like there's, there's like moms and dads right now who are like, they don't even know what to do. There, there's a whole people group that so many, some of us want to go like, oh, they're like race card or, or like there's this, there's this rhetoric coming from, from a certain news organization that begins with F and ends with X that is destructive and evil and broken about like a war on Christianity. It's just, it's, it's, I'm not trying to get political here. I just want to be honest. We're Christians. And so we should hear the cry of our, of the people, many of whom are sitting with us, to hear the ache of loss and be okay with stepping into that. And maybe as you're praying, the cry moves from what's happened in Charleston to things within your own life that you're just like, I need to cry out for this injustice and hurt that's happening around me. And that's okay. Allow God to lead you in that. But let us take a moment before we move to healing, before we move to what's the next step. All right, that's a temptation I have all the time. It's okay, so how do we fix it? Let's fix it. Let's fix it. We got to fix it. We need to stare into the wound and acknowledge that it's there. So let's do that together. So what happens when Jesus gets angry? When the cry is heard, what then? I think I've told this story before, but um, my bike got stolen. Um, and I kind of watched it got stolen. I walked into a 7-Eleven, like you do. And I was at the counter, and there was a, 
It was like tinted from here down. So all of a sudden, I saw a gentleman walk up. He seemed to go up a few inches. I can't see my bike. And I forgot that I just laid it against the wall there. And then all of a sudden, I see this head begin to move rather smoothly across the 7-Eleven. And I thought, hey, that's cool. <laughs> so in this moment, and uh, I wasn't in a great part of this city, and I mentioned that only in that this next move wasn't super wise. So I, I sprint out, leaving my like credit card at the 7-Eleven, and begin to chase after. This person had never ridden a fixed gear bike. Anyone have a fix, fixie? A fixed gear bike is a bike that um, you can't coast. Like the, the, wheel, it, the pedals always go, always. And so there was a little bit of justice happening because as he was pedaling, the thing kept whacking him in the back of the leg and there's little spikes on the, on the pedals. So it was definitely a little frustrating. There was a couple moments where like, he like, you know, like did the why thing just to let the things go because he was trying to figure out what on earth is going on. I, but I'm, I, I wasn't focusing on that so much as I was absolutely furious. This is this great injustice. If you've ever been robbed before, if you've someone break in your car, steal something, there's this explosive thing. I am literally running now down Broad Street, like running and yelling. I can't even quite remember what I was yelling, but I'm pretty sure Jesus was not pleased. Screaming as I run, 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 run. And then I have a moment where it hits me like, what happens if I catch up with him? Which isn't really going to happen. But what happens if I do? Like, what's my, what's my game plan here? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm a pretty, like, beefy guy, obviously. <laughs> pretty tall, pretty intimidating. <laughs> Needless to say, I think this guy probably would have had his way with me. Uh, and not so much a romantical way. And uh, I just had this moment I had to stop. Not only am I not going to catch him, but if I do catch him, like, uh, this fight isn't going to go very well. Thinking somehow my, like, convincing words as I yell is going to make him stop. Anger is explosive. How many of you have ever scared yourself? You got so angry at your spouse, at a situation. Remember the first time I got angry at my, who is now a 20-month-year-old, but she was, like, 11 months and she was like crying and I found myself holding her and she would not stop crying, Harper. And I was like, shh. Any parent ever want to really admit that they've done that? It was like, I'm just hugging you a little bit more than I probably should be hugging you right now going, shh, just stop. It's like three in the morning. What is wrong? Right? And it, it frightened me. Anger can kind of creep up on you. It, it's, it's explosive. It produces energy and adrenaline. And so Jesus, in this moment of anger that comes on him, we read this in this Sabbath passage. He, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and, as his, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus' anger leads to healing and restoration. What does your anger lead to? What does, in hearing the cry and being absolutely furious at the evil that we see around us in the world, does it help you join God in the renewal of all things? For Jesus, it gets channeled into a specific act of renewal. 
I don't think so often our problem is that we get angry. It's that our anger, what is our anger towards and what do we do with it? I think our anger so often becomes petty. John 2, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. So again, in the, in the religious place, it'd be like walking into church. He found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them out of the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Specifically, the, I love that it isolates the, the dove folks. Like, oh, and you guys selling the doves? You guys are especially going to get it. I think Jesus just really liked, liked doves? Didn't like doves? Not sure. Get out of here, he says. Stop turning, and here's, here's why. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Right after he clears the temple, it says in the book of John, that many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. For Jesus, the absolute furiousness and anger and frustration around what had happened leads to an act of healing and restoration. He begins to provide miracles and leading people back to himself. In Galatians 5, there's this whole story where there's these folks following Paul around. Paul's going around articulating the good news of Jesus and God's love, and you don't have anything like to earn, and just proclaiming the gospel and trailing him are these religious people who, again, they saw, um, it's a long backstory, but it's like circumcision, this religious act that boys do. Um, everyone clear on the circumcision thing? I don't need to do like a story, no show and tell. Raise your hand if you know what circumcision is. That's so weird. They're going around telling all these new converts, these like 49-year-old, 30-year-old like men, hey, if you're really going to like follow the way of Jesus, you got to uh, a little snip snip. The point wasn't the circumcision. The point was, he was these people were trying to heap on religious laws that didn't really relate to what was happening. There's this controversy around this, and Paul is furious because people are saying that Jesus isn't enough. And so this is what Paul says. Mark my words, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Interesting word usage. And says, as for those agitators, so he's talking to the people that are being threatened by these religious folks. For these people that are trying to get you to do a bunch of stuff to like be in. He says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> this is in the Bible. You guys all clear on what just happened there? Paul's just like, yeah, I, these people are so frustrating. They're trying to get you to do this whole circumcision, these religious principles. Like, like they're not, just, Jesus is enough. You don't need to do this. I wish they would, he's so mad. He's like, I wish they would just like, the whole thing off. They're ruining the good news. He says, later on, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. He speaks grace. He takes his anger and channels it into telling them the story of Jesus again and again and inviting them into a place of freedom. His anger fuels freedom and love and truth. I think when people come to a place of trying to figure out what they want to do with their life or deciding the regular rhythms of their week or the things that they choose to engage, we often ask, what do you love? And I think an equally important question for us as followers of Jesus is what makes you angry? What gets you riled up? Does systemic racism, does the evil of violence in the world, 
does the brokenness, whatever came to you in that last section of lamenting and crying out and saying, does my heart break? What came to light in your own world? What bubbled to the surface in that moment? And you go, this infuriates me to ask, is this the kind of thing that angers God? And what does it mean for me to join God in that? We live in a world where people get angry about things that don't matter. Amen? People get angry about things that don't matter. If I hear one more person get furious and throw stuff at like a television during a sports game, I'm talking to myself here. Like it's like these are the things that sometimes legitimately, sometimes it's just for fun, and sometimes like legitimately you're upset about that. Legitimately you're angry about that? This is the pain and, and frustration, the evil that's going on in the world, and you've allowed whatever media, narratives, your own like lack of purpose and sense of place like determine the things that you get angry about? This is one of those moments of like, who are you to say, pastor, like what I should and shouldn't get angry about? I, I want to encourage all of us to look at the scriptures and say, what makes God angry and what does God not care about at all? And can we learn something from the way of Jesus, from the way in which God operates in speaking to these first people in the New Testament? What makes God angry and do you get angry about it? Justice and compassion and generosity, the wasting of your life on the trivial things. I have found the people, friends of mine who are following the way of Jesus are a bit more free from petty and irrational responses to things. They have a perspective about what matters and what doesn't. They haven't bought into this industry of entertainment that feeds us petty anger that is just below the surface for so many. They don't fly off the handle and then are like not sure where that came from because they're people who get angry about the right sorts of things. Garrett Kaiser says this in The Enigma of Anger. This sort of sums everything up. Jesus, his is the zeal. It's talking about Jesus' anger in this passage and the tons more. His is the zeal of an ego identified with something larger than itself. He is not incensed over some personal insult, but by communal sacrilege, which is like a violence or a wrong, which he leads bound, which he feels bound to take personally. Jesus has aligned himself with something bigger. There will always be things to complain about, and there will always be people who need our help. There will always be minor annoyances in our life and there will always be the great commission to go and point people to the way of Jesus. There will always be frustrating details. That's fine. It's allowed, you're allowed to get frustrated at things. But there will always be things that matter most. And so in the wake of an event that seems to wake an entire country up to the issue of racism still existing, to the places of privilege, to the places of, of so much of this is socioeconomic and how we look at our own neighborhoods, does it wake us up to the cry? Are we people who go, God, I want to hear the cry? I know, right, in First, Second Corinthians, that God has reconciled me and has invited us, it says, into the ministry of reconciliation. That's our call. He's given you, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your primary mission is the reconciliation of God, you're to join him in that he's given us that ministry. God is making his appeal through us. It's why, for those of you who have seen the video, this, these Christians who were murdered, or these, these victims of these Christians who were killed, 
Did you see the video where they went and spoke to the murderer? Spoke to Dylan? They're literally saying things like, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. This hurt. May God have mercy on you. Even that prayer, it's like, I don't know if I can have mercy on you at the moment, but may God have mercy on you. You seem like a nice boy when we invited you into the Bible study. May God have mercy on you, but we forgive you. We will not let, I mean, this is like the, the anger and sadness and ache led to an act of restoration. I have two prominent atheists that I follow on Twitter. One of them said, man, this causes me to like, like really re-engage the worldview around Christianity, something like that. And the second one goes, if there ever needed to be an advertisement for the way of Jesus, this is the best advertisement I've ever seen. Global acts of redemption and restoration. Some of you came to church today and you have not been to church in decades because there's something that wakes up in you and you see someone take the anger and evil of the world and turn it into something beautiful and restoration to allow God, we believe as Christians, to allow God to work through you. And it speaks to you even if you want nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with religion. Something in you goes, that's, that's right. That's it. That's the thing. And so when we hear the cry, is it leading in our relationships in our neighborhoods and the injustices that we see around our city, does it lead to restoration? I wanted to just share lastly, for me, I was thinking about my own journey of becoming a pastor and every once in a while I stumble upon a person who talks about Jesus like he's, I don't know, some like backwoods, like angry, bigoted, like, I don't know, hate, like hateful sort of thing. They, they speak about the church and all its things that it has done wrong. They speak about it in a way that is just like so, like, like somebody, they experience something so broken. They got such a distorted view of who Jesus is from someone or somewhere. And, and I want you guys to know part of the reason I do what I do is it pisses me off. It makes me furious. Like, I hate it. I hate it. I hate that so many people have this view of Jesus that is just wrong and corrupted. It actually drives me. I get sick and tired of people who say they're speaking for Jesus who aren't. I want my future kids to live in a world where people think of Christians as people who actually follow Jesus. The Christians, oh, those are the folks that make peace. Those are the folks that are, are the passionate lovers of everyone. Those are the folks who are calling people to forgiveness and reconciliation. Those are the folks that are leading the charge. I want to bring restoration and renewal to Providence. I joke with Corey all the time. I want to bring restoration to the city because I'm so pissed off. Sometimes anger can be the thing for some of us that actually helps us answer the question, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with this situation? What am I going to do with the ache in my neighborhood? What am I going to do with this situation's relationship that is really actually kind of petty? And I need to be that voice of allowing this anger, this way I've been hurt, to lead to something good and true and beautiful. Because Jesus didn't give us words to simply agree with. Jesus gave us words to participate in. So, 
we're going to come to the table. At the table, Jesus is giving us a picture amongst many things of reconciliation, of God reconciling himself to us, the perfect and beautiful and perfect and holy and loving God of the universe, saying, I need to make things right between us because you continue to choose the way of death. And so it says, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still in our brokenness, like before any of us were, were born or knew our own, even knew our own sin, God died for us. It's like looking out at all the pain and anger of the world and going, I want to show you what love looks like. And I, in some mysterious way, and Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, reconciles all of this evil to himself and says, this is the way forward. This unbelievable act of love that moved the victims' families to go to that jail cell and say, I forgive you. They can only do that because they've been forgiven. You cannot easily separate their enemy love from their faith. And so we come today, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, would you come to the table to take the bread, to dip it in the wine, this table of, of peace and love and hope and reconciliation and be reminded of Christ's body broken for you and his blood poured out for you, declaring my hope is built on nothing less than this, and God is reconciling me and reconciling the world back to himself and I get to participate in that reconciliation and bringing everything back to the way it needs to be. I get to join God in that and that God will ultimately do that in some powerful way. And if you're, you're here and this has just been a place for you to process and to sing and to listen, um, allow this time to be one of just maybe just openness. Maybe this is an invitation to be open, a little open-minded. And to say, okay, God, if you're out there, or, or if I'm going to really take a step in following Jesus, or, or maybe for you it's just a, a move forward in, in your own place of, of, of understanding what love and forgiveness and hearing the cry looks like, let this space while we're taking communion be one where you can do that. And if you're just hurting right now, even if it's just unrelated to anything we've talked about, there are some folks over here that would love to pray with you. So, as you're ready, you form a line up the middle and come to the center and take the bread and to dip it in the cup as a reminder of Christ's body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. Lord, um, help us through this week to lament and engage to cry out Lord not to the empty void of nothing to recognize Lord the ache and the groans of this world we don't cry out like those who have no hope and what you have done, will do, or are doing, and ultimately will do, Lord. And they are crying out, and they are lamenting, they are identifying with the ache of our brothers and sisters. May that lament, Lord, in time turn to engagement. May our anger at those 
our, our anger for those crying out, turn to justice and turn to acts of renewal and love. May our pettiness fade away as we engage that which truly matters. May you be the source of our power and engagement that we would not be burned out, that we would not succumb to compassion fatigue, that we would not be doing things of our own power, but asking God, where are you working and joining you in that? Demonstrating and announcing the good news of who you are. Identifying, Lord, the poverty in our city on this Father's Day, I can't help but pray that some of us in this room would be spurred on to mentor so many of the issues, Lord, in our, in our city revolve around just a, a huge a number of kids with no fathers. May you call some of us today to mentor, to get involved with Rise and Boys and Girls Club. Some of us who are, have friends who just have been aching and tired and exhausted and we have just wanted to kind of turn an eye because it just feels like too much. May we be able to tell stories, Lord, not just in the coming days and weeks, but in the coming years of how on this Sunday, on June 21st, we responded by lamenting and crying out for the ache of the pain and the sin and the evil of this world. And we stepped into acts of righteous anger and renewal joining you and putting things back together. May we become aware of our anger and may we learn to channel it, to focus it, and to direct it into something beautiful. As we close our time, when we read together just I, this last prayer that we, uh, we just read with Lonnie. The kind of last response. Just the final response, yeah. Or not. I can just read it. There we go. Thanks, man. As you read together with full voices, we declare our love for you, our sisters, we declare our love for you, our brothers. We declare our love for you, their families. We declare our love as one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We declare they do not grieve alone today. Amen.